This week we conclude our sermon series in the book of Acts as we look at a story not of punishment or retribution, but instead a story of redemption. And it models our own story of redemption as Jesus pursued each of us. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, September 28th, 2014. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. This, this is our last Sunday for this summer in the book of Acts. Without, <laughs> without looking, uh, do you know how long we've been in the book of Acts? We started the week before Pentecost. Without looking in the bulletin, do you know what week it is in Pentecost? 16, because who doesn't know that? I, you probably ordered a cake, and it's Pentecost 16. We have been in the book of, uh, book of Acts for like four months. And the book of Acts is a fascinating book because it tells about the history of the church. It says, like, why are we even here, and how did the church go from just Jewish people to going to people who are not Jewish of descent like us. So it tells the history of the church, tells about how it started to boom. It even starts to talk about some of the troubles. And some of those troubles we'll talk about uh, where the church had all these kind of generalist apostles and they said, hey, we gotta, we got to separate this a little bit and we have to be a team of specific people. Next week, though, we're starting, I'm pretty excited about it, we're starting a series on marriage. Uh, what does marriage mean? What's the meaning of marriage? I think it applies. And if you come next week, that's not an admission that your marriage is needs help. So we'll just lay that on the table. Um, I think it's going to apply very well for people who are married. I'm looking forward to it as a married person to go through what scripture says. Even if you're single and you're saying like, who, what should I be looking for in a spouse and what does God intend in marriage? I think if you have that idea behind you, I think we're in good shape. So I think I covered everybody. Everyone's either married or single. Perfect. So I'll see everyone next week. That's fantastic. We are in uh, the book of Acts and we're going through Talking about things that are, kind of stand up above the rest. So if I would ask you, what, name somebody just in your head who stands out in history. We've got 7 billion people on this planet. Name somebody who stands uh, like head and shoulders above other people. They've done something usually good, not always good. Sometimes you get someone like Hitler or if I say Lee Harvey Oswald, you know who that is. But think about someone like of all our people who have kind of risen above and done something amazing. If I would guess, like, can you have the Emancipation Proclamation without thinking of Abraham Lincoln? Can you think of the United States of America without thinking of George Washington? Can you think of, like, the Civil Rights Movement? And I don't even have to, you're saying, like, Martin Luther King Jr. You can't do it. Now, now just walk with me in Scripture for a little bit. Can you have the, the nation of Israel without Father Abraham? And how many of you thought in your head, Father Abraham had many sons? Yep. That's, that's a sign of a well-spent youth at kid camp, right? So, right, so you can't have the, the nation of Israel without Father Abraham. You can't have, like, have the people leaving Egypt without Moses. You can't have um, all kinds of things, specifically when we talk about the Bible. So my question is this. Outside of Jesus, who has the biggest influence on history in the New Testament? I'd say Paul. I mean, I'd say the Apostle Paul, and that's, that's who we're talking about today. He is a pillar, and I want to talk a little bit about what makes him so unique. Uh, my dad, when he reads the scriptures about Paul, he says he comes off as a little arrogant. Um, we'll talk about, maybe we could give him a little leeway. Um, here's a picture. This is one of the pictures we had of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's not a photograph, if the kids are wondering. This is just the painting. This is kind of in the middle. He's, according to Josephus, not a real handsome guy. So I took one in the middle. There's, uh, there's kind of uglier pictures of the Apostle Paul. There's ones where he looks like Fabio, and I went kind of right down the middle. 
Things you should know about the Apostle Paul, though, he's privileged. Uh, he's privileged. He not only is a Jewish citizen, but he's also a Roman citizen. That's a big deal. I don't know how he got that, but somehow he can travel among these Gentile nations without trouble because he's a Roman citizen. He went to an elite school, and he said he was part of the most strict sense of the, the Jewish faith. And so he's, he's privileged and that, that education. He's got some of the best educated people that are teaching him. He's a worker. Resilient is maybe the word. Guys who estimate this, and I have no idea how they do this, they say he walks roughly 20 miles a day during his ministry. So my guess is they say, like, what does the average person walk at that time, and then they just kind of add to it. But 20 miles a day, how far, what would you do to walk 20 miles a day? What are you so passionate about that you would walk 20 miles for? Chocolate. Okay, besides that, what would you walk... 20 miles. Some of you, has anyone done the breast cancer three-day walk? Isn't that 20 miles times three? Has anyone done it? The people that do it, I mean, they're passionate. They have someone who died of breast cancer, and they say, okay, this is serious to me. They do it, and everyone has said, like, you wouldn't believe how much work it is. Like, day one's not bad, and then the next day you had to wake up at these camps and then go do it again, and then you got day three. Imagine doing that for the rest of your life. I should have probably got a skinnier version of the Apostle Paul. That's what I should have done. So he's a worker, plus as an apostle for Christ, he felt so passionately about the gospel, he finds himself in the middle of a riot. He finds himself shipwrecked. He finds himself beaten. He finds himself flogged. So if you'd see a picture of his back, it would just be scars because they used like a glass in the, and they flogged him and ripping flesh out of his back for the sake of the gospel. He got stoned where they take the rocks. We talked about Stephen where he got killed. The same thing happened to him. They take the stones with the intent to kill them. They wind up, they whip them at his head and he's knocked out, left for dead. He wakes up, and you know what he does? Let me ask it this way. What do you think I would do if, for preaching the gospel, um, someone stoned me? I've got to be careful how I use that in this state, don't I? Someone, someone took rocks and threw them at my head with the intention to kill me. I would at least take the day off, right? I mean, I think, I think that would be legit. I, I think I might even retire. That would be, I'm like, I think I'm good there. I'll just do my internet ministry to, to reach people. He gets up and he goes and preaches the gospel some more. So he's stoned and he's flogged and he's beaten and he's in riots. He's thrown in prison in, not, in some really nice prisons, like a house church because he was a Roman citizen. Some really not nice. All by himself. He's not married and he's going through this ministry all by himself. He's brilliant. Uh, our own Martin Luther says he is the wisest person outside of Christ. I'm just pausing because some of you are going to refute that in your head, aren't you? You're thinking, like, no, no, Solomon actually is the wisest person. So then I would propose this idea to you. Uh, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women in his life. So you just keep thinking, like, what a genius this guy is. And if um, he has 1,000 women in his life, he's, his reign is only 40 years. So that means he had a new relationship. He, he spread it out over that course of time every month. So now I'm his pastor. Just imagine this. And he comes to me. He says, hey, pastor, I'm thinking about getting married for the 654th time. I'd be like, honey, I just met the wisest man I've ever met in my life. I don't think that's happening. So I think we can push this over to the Apostle Paul. Wise and brilliant, and, and he can write and, and explain things, and he can argue with the philosophers. He is so unique in his brilliance. And you see, like, if you ever read the book of Romans, like, I haven't preached on the book of Romans, and I probably won't for a while because I don't know if I feel confident explaining what the Apostle Paul just writes about. 
He's published, he writes half the, prolific, he writes half the New Testament. So by volume, it's actually Luke. But by books, he writes 13 of 27 books. Now, I think it's a big deal if you write a book. Some of you have written a big book, that's cool. Have, I'm guessing, though, none of you have written a book published by the Holy Spirit. No. So this guy is privileged, he's a worker, he's brilliant, and he's prolific. Here's the cool thing, though. To understand someone, and the movie world knows this, to understand someone who is remarkable, you kind of have to know them before they're that person. And we see this in Batman Begins. It isn't, if you didn't know, right? If you didn't know who Bruce Wayne was, you wouldn't understand Batman. If you didn't understand who Logan was for Wolverine, would you understand like all the angst that goes on and it wouldn't make sense? Um, the same thing is true about the Apostle Paul. You know where the first time we meet him? It's in uh, Acts chapter 7. So the guy we knew, Stephen. So Stephen is preaching the gospel. Remember, we had the apostles, and then they got these evangelists, and they're taking care of the widows, and he's preaching Jesus. And they get so angry with him, they bring him into the Sadducees. Remember the story? It's kind of an emotional one for me because I think about my own ministry and young people who are, are persecuted around the world for teaching Jesus. So they bring him into this assembly, right? And they, they start going at him, and he says, I mean, it, people are, are coming at him, threatening him. We talked about wolves in that sermon. And he says, hey, you know, since you're all here, I'll just share a sermon, and I'll give you a little Bible lesson about how the whole Old Testament's about Jesus. So he starts from the beginning, remember? And he goes through, like, Joseph, and he goes through Moses, and he goes through Abraham, and he gets all the way to, to say, like, guys, the man you killed is the Son of God. They're so infuriated with this. They're so angry. It's like they covered their ears and they start screaming. They grab him. They drag him out. And they take rocks. And they stone him. They take these rocks, like softball-sized rocks, and they start whipping him at his face. And then, you know, just to make sure they could throw hard, they take their jackets off, right? You, you can just imagine that. You, get a, you don't want to mess around. You don't want to get, like, blood on your shirt. So you take your jacket off. Do you know where they lay their jackets? the foot of a man named Saul. And there's this young man there. Maybe he's the boss. We don't know. They take their jackets and they, they lay their cloaks on them. And this is what it says in Scripture. They drag him out of the city. They begin to stone him. So like a guy is getting killed in front of your face. You've seen car accidents that make you like sick. You've seen someone going into the emergency room. You probably cut your hand and some of you feel queasy. They're throwing rocks at this guy's head and he's dying right before their eyes. They lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Let me tell you another story. I got a friend named Denton. Um, I don't talk to him now. I mean, we, I worked at the lumber yard. I've told you that, right? So I drive my lumber truck, and um, we deliver sheetrock because they would give it to some guy who's done enough to hurt his shoulder because he does like 400, delivers 400 sheets of sheetrock a day. Well, Denton's a powerful guy, and we worked two summers together. We had a good relationship. The relationship was I had my CDL. He didn't. He wanted his CDL. I liked reading magazines. He liked driving the truck. This worked out like we had a symbiotic relationship. Like I would just read books and hang out in the passenger seat with his temporary permit he could drive. Pretty powerful guy. And uh, we'd deliver these like 200-pound sheets together. And he never like winced and he was just a machine. And, you know, I'd struggle behind him and he's just... But one time he said when I was in grade school, so just imagine eighth grade, we'd have like pull-up contests in the houses and stuff like that after we were done working. So we would, we would do this, and he said when I was in like eighth grade, he starts telling me this story about this kid who was making fun of him. And he picked the kid up, and he threw him, and the kid stumbled just wrong, and he hits his head on a wall. 
brain damage. And I could tell, uh, you know, I could tell just looking at him, like this affected our relationship, and he would bring this up once in a while because it really bothered him. He felt terrible. I mean, you could imagine just in a fit of something, you do something, and someone is hurt forever. It's one thing to like punch someone in the stomach like the movies, and you're like, okay, that, it's another thing when that person can't get up. Denton felt guilt about that. How do you think the Apostle Paul felt when they threw rocks at this guy's head? That's what it says in Scripture. He liked it. He thought this is what should happen. And from that day forward, he starts ravaging. That's how it talks in Scripture. He starts ravaging the church, and he goes from house to house to house, and Christian to Christian to Christian with this idea to get him in prison and get rid of this thing called the way. Because who dare go against the, the holy God that I preach? Who dare do that? We have to snuff this out while we can so he goes from house to house to house, looking to destroy the church. One chapter later, meanwhile, Saul is still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Any of you ever walked uh, 160 miles? Even on a treadmill, how long would it take you to do that? I rode 26 miles once. That's about the extent. I rode a bike once for 100. I mean, that's on a bike, though. 160 miles. It is closer for you to walk to Cheyenne than it is from Jerusalem to Damascus. How many of you like to ski? You're like, yeah, you get in the car, right? And you're, This is how I feel. I'm like, man, I got the new Vail Epic Pass this year. I'm pretty excited. But to do that on a Saturday morning or something like that, how many of it is, is it worth your trouble? to say, like, you know, the powder would be really awesome, but that's a little too far, right? That's in a car going 70. It is closer to walk to Damascus from Jerusalem than it is to walk to Vail. Some of the kids went to Rocky Mountain Christian Camp. It is closer to walk to Rocky Mountain Christian Camp than it is to walk to Damascus. Saul is so incensed with this idea of Christianity and these people that follow this Jesus that he walks. He gets permission. He says, like, the the persecution spread these people out. I want to walk to Damascus, which would take like eight days to try and snuff this out. So it says Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, uh, men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, now, just think how crazy that is, too. You walk, you walk 160 miles because you're so angry with something, and now you have to take a prisoner, and then you have to drag that person back. Anyone who's been on that historic tour that we do on the bikes, they found guys, they have horses, right? And they go all the way down, they find them by Palmer Lake. They get sick of the guy dragging his feet, so they hang him. They get all the way up to here, they hang that guy, too. That's like 30 miles. And now you have these prisoners that you want to put in. That's how passionate he is about trying to snuff this out. So the real question is this. As we reflect in our own life, the way. The reason it's called that is Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll run into people, and this is what's hard as you try and share your faith. You'll run into people that'll say like, hey, uh, I'm not sure if I'm totally into this. Jesus is the way to heaven, but I'm pretty zealous. Well, I'll tell you what, so is the Apostle Paul. They say, I don't know if I'm totally into this idea of uh, Jesus is the only way to heaven. I'm not sure if that's really, but I'm, I'm spiritual. Do you think he's an atheist? Is he just doing this on his own? He thinks he's got like this divine call from God to snuff out this church and he's going to go with the greatest effort that he can get. 
to try and snuff this out. So he's on his way. He's gone 160 miles. He's traveled for eight days. It says as he neared Damascus, he's like there, like he can see it. He's, he's just envisioning how awesome this is going to be. Suddenly this light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard this voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. So he's hearing this voice. It's supernatural. I can't explain it. He says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard, they heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, so you imagine this. Um, I mean, just imagine how sickening this would be. It, like it... He's working his whole life. He's so passionate and he's respected by everyone around only to discover the very thing he is so passionate about is on the wrong team. Like, it, like if you had PTSD, right, and you just, you're beating the enemy and then you wake up and you find out it's your wife, right? I mean, that's what it would feel like, just the sickening feeling like I am persecuting the God in heaven. Well, he gets up from the ground, he opens his eyes, he can't see anything. And they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days, he's blind. He did not eat or drink anything. What, what do you think he's doing during that three days? Why doesn't he eat or drink? Probably just feels sick, right? It's like a parent who, in a drunk driving, you know, they drink too much and they crash, and they live, but their child dies. I mean, how would you feel? You would just feel sick. And I don't think you could even communicate. And now he's like, it says he's a young man, right? He's fit. He's like, he would be part of our 20s, 30 girl group. Young man in the, young man in the Bible means under 40. Then you're just a man. So I'm looking forward to that. Someday I'll be a man. But, right? He's got, he's young and he's supposed to be fit and do all these things. And he can't see anything. He, he doesn't want to drink. He doesn't want to eat. And how many of you, who, if you don't know the story, you're like, take that. Right? When you just see how, how twisted this guy is, that he's willing to like, watch people get killed before his eyes and like it, how many, how many of you think that's deserving? This isn't a story about punishment. This isn't a story about retribution. This is a story of redemption. And so the Lord, in Damascus, there's a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. He says, Ananias, yes, Lord, he, he answered, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, super original name there, and asked him for a man named Tarsus, named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has come to see a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, are you just envisioning what he's saying? Like, um, how do I say this to God, even though he's already reading my thoughts? I've, um, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to rest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. He placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is not a story of retribution. This is not a story of God saying, like, like there's parts where people affect you and they hurt you and you think, like, it's the Lord's call on this, right? That, that's what's happening. And I wonder how many people in that Christian church is going, like, Lord, will you just take care of Saul? Just take care of that guy, right? He killed my family. He killed my friend. He killed a fellow, apost- I mean, a fellow uh, evangelist. Lord, will you take care of him? But God's idea of taking care of those who hurt him is to pursue them. And it's really easy to stand, I think, and look at the Apostle Paul and, and Saul and, and say, what a lousy guy. If God could save anyone, he can save me. He could save anybody else. But I think this is a question of us looking in the mirror and you see someone who is against Christianity, who's willing to go 160 miles, and you start to say, what am I willing to do to proclaim Christ? How much effort have I made? And how often have I been embarrassed to even talk about it? And you look in the mirror and you say, maybe if God can save someone like me, he can save some other people. Stephen's prayer is the one that's answered. You know the guy where they're throwing the rocks? I cut one part out of there. He mimics Jesus as he's sitting there, and the rocks are hitting him, and it says, he looks up to heaven, and he says, Father, forgive them. It sounds like Jesus, right? Do not hold this sin against them. This isn't a story about Paul's vigor seeking Christ, and he finds him. It's a story of what Christ is willing to do to find Paul, and what Christ is willing to do to find you. God's up in heaven, and and we're here sinning away, and he says, you know what? I need to come to this earth to make things right. And he's so far, and he goes and he becomes a human being because he's willing to go that far for you. He's willing to live every single day perfect for you. He's willing to be flogged again and again. He's willing to be beaten. He's willing to be humiliated. He's willing to let these simple human beings put him on a cross to take his life away for what reason? This is not a story of retribution. It's a story of grace. And it's the story of grace in Paul's life, and it's the story in your life. God used those amazing gifts of Paul. He does. He does. His privileged status, we can go through a couple of these just real quick. His privileged status allowed him to travel to around the whole country and plant more church than we can even dream of. He's a worker. Uh, he works again and again, traveling all this way because he's totally committed, and when, no matter what came to him. He uses his brilliance to, to write scripture so that we can even today understand. Without Paul, I think we would struggle to understand just what exactly God has intended for our life. And he's prolific. He continues to write this so it affects our life. So the take-home is this. This is the big question. God has redeemed me. God has redeemed you. God has bought you back. He's bought me back. God has bought Paul back. And he uses Paul's amazing gifts to do something special. And so the big question is this. What gifts... What gifts has God given you that he can redeem, that he can use to further his kingdom? Maybe you're a leader, maybe you're a nurse, maybe you're an accountant, maybe you're good at writing, maybe you're good at setting stuff up, maybe you're good at talking to people, maybe you're good at doing, helping and serving people. Figure out what those gifts are because God has redeemed you, God has paid for you, and God says, I want you to use those gifts now, not for something else, but for this amazing thing called the gospel and that proclamation. Amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, we we come to you humble because we know that you have done amazing things for us. You've transformed the Apostle Paul, but ultimately each of us is a new person. 
We pray that we have a new attitude, one that says we're not ashamed of this gospel, and there's times that we have acted shamefully that way. Help us to be invigorated like Paul and to travel and to talk and to use whatever gifts you have given us to further your kingdom. There are people that are far from you, but we know you answer prayer. Stephen prayed that you wouldn't hold that against the men who killed him, and we pray of those people that we love and care about and even people we don't know that that gospel can reach them. Help us in our lowest times. Uh, help us as we look to proclaim your gospel to change lives, not because we're so amazing, but instead because you're amazing. And let us proclaim that truth with all its purity.